Hi, this is Michael Waits. I'm talking to Sean Ryan. Sean is the author of The War for China's Wallet. And we spoke to Sean back, I think, in October or November of last year. And I wanted to have him back on. Now that the book's been out for a while, I wanted to find out how it was going, what the response has been like, and how things move forward from here. Sean, how are you? It's very good to speak with you again, Michael. It has been an eventful last few months. It really has been. And that's, look, when we, the last time we talked, I said, look, I really hope that after the book comes out, we get a chance to talk to you again. And here we are. So let's just address the book in the first place, right? So now that it's been out for a while, I remember that there were a couple of publishing issues or just sort of time delays. I'm wondering just like, now that it's out there, how's it going? Oh, it's uh, beating my expectations. So I'm quite happy. Thank you. There were some issues when the book came out. Uh, demand was higher than expected globally. So Amazon um, was unable to get the book out on, in the original month, actually. They started right. delivering most copies out end of December, early January, rather than the December 4th official release date. So it's a good thing that demand was higher than expected, a bad thing that Amazon wasn't able to get the logistics ironed out uh, before the Christmas season. But overall, I've been quite happy with reader responses. Um, they've been in line with what I expected, except, Michael, for mainland Chinese. Um, I was quite worried that they would heavily criticize me, because if you recall, the book is about how China yep. is using economic carrots and sticks to punish countries and companies that cross it politically and to reward countries and companies that do its political bidding. Um, and I was worried that mainland Chinese readers would view it as me saying China is being a bully um, in Southeast Asia and around the world. But in fact, they actually have been quite appreciative of my comments. So I, I've been quite, quite pleased with feedback from the mainland side. Yeah, I mean, I guess for me, the, the first question to respond to that is, is what China is doing really any different than what any other world power does when they want to um, sort of project their economic power to the rest of the world? They say, look, you're going to have to deal with us on our terms and our terms may seem a bit strong to you, but every country that does this and that gets strong kind of does that as well, no? And I, and I think that Chinese would be proud think, in a way. Yeah, there are a lot of similarities. I mean, the United States obviously uses its economic might to cajole um, other countries to do what it wants. You right. know, if you look, I think um, Ian Bremmer, who adores the book and is a political scientist, said something like America tried to influence 80 political elections in the last five decades of democracies. So America does similar things to China. Um, the main difference is I think there's two areas. The first is that China, one week, will be very friendly towards a country, and the next week will attack it with economic sanctions, essentially. Okay. So it's, they sort of bounce back and forth very quickly, which make you know, allies have to always do their bidding. Well, the United States won't do that type of thing with Canada or the United Kingdom, but will do it on a longer-term basis against Iran or North Korea with economic sanctions. So the difference is the speed and the agility that China attacks. The second is how China rallies the consumers through the state-owned media. So again, as we talked about last time, it wasn't just China's political system attacking South Korea for installing THAAD missile. It was also the everyday population spurred by propaganda, spurred by media attacks, 
that got a lot of Chinese consumers saying, we're not going to buy Chinese consumer, uh, South Korean consumer products, right. or we're not going to visit South Korea anymore. So those are, those are some of the differences. Right. But there so, are similarities. Right. So this is interesting, right? So we talk about branding and brands, right? So what it means is that, I think, is that when the Chinese government or when state media says this or that about some other country, in this case, South Korea, it impacts Samsung directly. And Samsung turns out to be something like 18 to 20% of South Korean GDP. So it's really important and really significant. And it brings me always back to the smartphone market, right? So like you talk a lot about how Western businesses kind of miss the point in China. And I think one of the examples that you like to use is Nestle and how maybe it potentially loses out to domestic brands. Do you want to talk a little bit more about what they're missing and how the domestic brands take sure. advantage of that? I think there's a lot of arrogance in a lot of multinationals when they sure. come to operating consumer brands in China. Absolutely. Um, part of the problem is there was a lot of fear five, ten years ago amongst Chinese consumers about the Made in China label. People were concerned about buying counterfeit goods, tainted goods, expired oh. goods. So there's huge trust in foreign brands. So an example is in 2011. Uh, my firm, because I run a, a research firm called the China Market Research CMR, Firm, yeah. we interviewed 5,000 consumers in 15 cities. And at that time, 85% of consumers said that they would prefer a foreign brand over a local brand. Interesting. Okay, this was in 2011. So five years later, we interviewed the same number of consumers, and the results were different. Um, at that point, 60% of Chinese said they would prefer to buy a domestic Chinese brand over a foreign brand. So you get arrogant companies like Nestle that were still thinking in the 2010-2011 timeframe, thinking that Chinese would only trust Swiss brands or other foreign brands because they're foreigners and they're inherently more trustworthy. But what we've seen in the last three to five years is increased pride in buying Chinese brands as part uh, and parcel of increased nationalism or jingoism. But it's also that Chinese companies themselves have really gotten better. Um, they've moved up the value chain. They're really focused on innovation. They're focused on quality control. And they're either doing it through organic growth. Um, you know, you see Bright Food, Mengyo Dairy, Ely Dairy are all companies that are, you know, kicking, kicking Nestle's butt, kicking Unilever's butt. But then you also have companies in China that are going abroad, uh, inorganically through acquisition. So you saw like Geely, the automaker, just announced a $9 billion investment into Daimler, right. the parent company of Mercedes. Right. So Chinese companies now are as good in many cases as foreign brands. Chinese consumers understand this, but a lot of multinationals like Nestle just don't get it. Or even if some of them get it, they're too slow moving. They're, they're unable to adjust to new market forces. It takes them three years to launch a new product while well, Chinese companies might take a matter of weeks. So I find this concept of Western arrogance actually really interesting. And I think we continue to see this play out. And I can go back to sort of Japan in the 70s and 80s, where you know American car companies just thought, well, just drop in a Ford into Japan and it'll work there. The only problem is they didn't understand that Japanese streets were smaller and some of them were one way. Getting big cars down side streets wasn't going to work. And the same thing in Korea, right? As these companies, as these countries, and their companies that are associated with them kind of, as you said, come up the value chain, they do go out and start innovating. And then the domestic market is one of the biggest beneficiaries of that after sort of the export market. But I want to talk a little bit about 
arrogance and specifically Nestle, if you don't mind, like how does it manifest itself? What are they doing that comes across for the consumer as arrogant? Well, a, a great example of just not understanding the consumer and misreading them would be their water division. Oh. So, for instance, in Europe, um, consumers are very concerned about the environment. So what Nestle did there was they started um, reducing the amount of product in their water bottles so they would sort of crumple. And they stopped using glue to keep the labels on the bottle, and they cut the cap size in half. Now, for European consumers, they see Nestle as a cheap, you know, um, good value water product. Right. And they really like that this was cheap. But for Chinese consumers, they viewed Nestle as the vaunted, trusted Swiss brand with a very good position. So it was an aspiration buy to buy Nestle water. Right. Um, it wasn't the cheapest water in the market like it was in Europe. So when, when, when Nestle sort of went down quality um, on their packaging, a lot of consumers told us, this isn't about trying to save the environment. This is about Nestle trying to save a buck. So they're cutting the cap in half not to preserve the environment but right. to save money. How can you have a bottle without glue on the label? Now, when I told this to the Nestle guys, they just yelled at me. You know, and they said that I was wrong, that the Chinese consumer is concerned about pollution and thus concerned about the environment. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, trumping that is the fear over product safety and product quality. And so if you've seen the Chinese companies in the last three to five years, like Bright Food that I mentioned before that's right. kicking Nestle's butt, right. is they've focused a lot on packaging. Their packaging is really expensive. It's beautiful to touch because Chinese equate better packaging with better quality food, better quality beverage, and thus safer. And they're willing to pay a premium for that. Nestle just doesn't get that. Um, you know, and it's not just Nestle. I mean, right. I think it's a lot of global number one brands. You know, if you look at it, even when times were good and there wasn't a lot of domestic competition, Walmart never did well in China. Nope. Google. I mean, Google guys, well, they've tried to, I think, falsify things. Um, and they say that Google had a market-leading share in search before they block, came out and got blocked by the Chinese government. That's not really true. Not really. Um, in our research, Baidu, Baidu by was far, yeah. far and away ahead and dominated the market at like 80%, 90%. And the only time people ever used Google search was when they were searching for something in English. But Google's Chinese language search engine was terrible compared to Baidu's, according to the vast, vast majority of Chinese consumers that we interviewed. So the reality is, is a lot of these number one brands, Nestle especially, but they're very arrogant and they feel that when they come to China, they know what's going on and the market goes to them rather than adjusting. Now, one of the keys, Michael, is I've been really talking about the rise of Chinese brands. Right. But when I've posted this on LinkedIn or I've written about it in articles or in books, I get a lot of fan mail and response from people in India, from people in Brazil from people in other so-called developing or third-world markets, right. and what they're saying is they're starting to see the domestic same, brands move the up the same value thing, well. right? It's not just a China thing. Yeah, it's the same thing. It's not just a China thing, but China just happens to be ahead of the curve because there's so many well-capitalized, ambitious Chinese firms. So let's just extrapolate a little bit, if you don't mind, right? So I mentioned Japan and South Korea because... Japan, after the Second World War, South Korea, obviously, after the Korean War and after the Vietnam War, sort of saw their tech companies, I'm going to use tech companies as a proxy for the economy just because it's easy, right? But their tech companies and their car companies start to explode, and a lot of their marketing was done 
um, for exports. Yeah. But the difference, I yep. think, or one of the differences, and, and I think that the big Western countries were like, see, same thing, same pattern over and over and over again, right? But the difference is that Japan at its peak had, what, 150 million people in it? And South Korea, what, 50-something, 60-something million people in it. So domestic market, by definition, were not that big. But the countries that you just mentioned, China, India, even Brazil, have massive domestic markets. And what that means is that they don't need to look necessarily overseas to have large market share or even large profits. That's a big difference, exactly. no? Yeah, exactly. And that's why, you know, Google has actually, you know, I haven't done an exact cross-section analysis, but when they tend to go into countries that have a big market, they don't do as well. No, they you don't. Know, they tend they to don't. dominate smaller markets like Congo or, you know, Argentina, because there isn't the same strength in the domestic market. But in a country like India or a country like China, you are seeing aggressive, well-capitalized local companies. Um, I actually, you know, am quite negative on the Fortune 500 companies because they're starting to really get beat in a lot of these markets because of the quality like we've talked about. Right. But then just this rising patriotism backlash right. where governments um, are heeding the wants of Chinese or heeding the wants of local Indians, and they don't want foreign leaders anymore. Right. I mean, look, we've talked about this so many times, right, in the context of not just China, but in all of Asia. There are more people in Asia than there are in the rest of the world. It's like full stop. And if you throw India in it, there are way more people there than anywhere else in the world. And these other foreign brands just don't get the fact that they can't literally just waltz into a country these days and just take it over with their brand. And the other thing that they're missing, too, is that, like I said, in the past, if the South Koreans decided that they were going to boycott or just not pay as much attention to Apple phones, right? They just want to be nationalistic and buy Samsung. It kind of wasn't that big a deal because the market itself wasn't that big. But when China yep. does it, it matters. Well, and I'll give an example. A couple of weeks ago, my mother-in-law, her phone um, was falling apart. And she's always had an iPhone. The battery, right? Um, and she's liked Apple. This you is know, the battery every, thing, yeah, yeah, the battery. Everybody in my family has, has used Apple for generations of purchases. So have I. But she was angry. You know, she and I'm angry, too, with the battery. You know, in, in the battery system in China, um, they say that if you change your screen right. outside of an Apple yep. store, you can't get they won't give fixed. you the free battery replacement, which is a much bigger issue in China than in the United States because more people change their screens in the small mobile refi phone repair shops here or in Thailand than they would in the U.S., which Same. are not all over the place. Same. Second, um, I tried to replace my battery in early January. They told me I had to wait until April. So four months, even though my phone was basically not usable. So my mother-in-law, her, she was having a lot of issues with her phone. So what did she want? She wanted a Huawei. Right. So we got her the um, Mate 10. The Mate 10 is a beautiful phone. absolutely loves it. You know, she loves the Huawei. Um, my wife is now thinking about getting one. I'm thinking about getting one. The only thing that I'm hesitant on is the personal lack of ability to get to the American app stores. But for Chinese who don't want to get access to the English language apps in America. Right. The Huawei is, you know, 40% cheaper. Pound for pound, it's almost as good, if not better, than Apple technology-wise. And so when we're interviewing consumers on the street, more and more wealthy consumers say, let's buy Huawei. More and more price-sensitive consumers are saying, let's buy Oppo or Vivo, and others are talking about Xiaomi. So Apple has a huge problem in China. Their handsets, 
don't have the same drawing power as they did even two years ago in the China market, yet they're not adjusting to the reality. They're not putting in dual SIM cards, for instance, which a lot of Chinese like to have multiple phone numbers. Um, they're not making it easy to replace batteries. So I think Apple will continue to do okay here, but unless they come up with a handset that is 10 times better than anything else in the market, or until they come up with some amazing software or some ecosystem, Apple's going to be in a rough time. Chinese want to buy Chinese-made products made by Chinese for Chinese. That's part of the patriotism rise that we're seeing in the marketplace. Right. And Huawei is just as good. Now, also, Michael, is you see that I think it was Verizon or it might have been um, AT&T um, decided not to run the Huawei Pro 10s, Mate 10s, in the United States because of pressure from the American Congress. I saw that. I expect that there could be a tit-for-tat in could China. Be. You know, if Marco Rubio and Tom Cotton, senators from the U.S., get their way, then ZTE, Huawei, and other Chinese uh, telecom companies won't be able to sell their equipment in the United States. I could see very easily China saying, well, we're not going to allow Cisco, we're not going to allow Apple uh, in order to have such um, access to the Chinese market, because Apple right now has so much data on everyday Chinese citizens and has sure. so much power on information that the Chinese government doesn't like. Right. So you really brought up two things that I want to discuss. I want to talk about the data and the data centers for Azure and for Apple in a second. But before we get there, I want to talk about Huawei, if you don't mind. Sean, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. I'm yeah. waiting. <laughs> so I just want to make sure. Huawei's, Huawei's sure. A, a good... I want to talk about Huawei and I'll tell you yeah, why. Huawei is always good to talk about. They actually um, patent more to Apple than Apple patents to Huawei. Sure. So they are a technology lead. They are. But here's the thing that I want to talk about. So Huawei has, for the last, you tell me, 40, 50 years, gone around and built their switching business and their back-end networking business and their back-end telecoms business everywhere in the world except for in the United States. And the reason in the United States that they haven't been able to build it out is partly political um, and definitely not technological. Right, where their back-end switching equipment rivals whatever Cisco and Nortel and all these other Western companies are doing. But in that context, if my information is correct, they've gone around the rest of the world, Africa, Eastern Europe, and the rest of Asia, and they've installed their back-end stuff to run the phone systems, I believe, also at DTAC and at True in Thailand. And what that means is that now when they go out and sell handsets um, and the larger um, devices like the Mates and even some tablets, that those handsets are now highly optimized to run directly with the back-end systems. This is a big problem, right? Because Apple's handsets are great, but they have to then optimize them to run on multiple systems as well. Can you just talk a little bit about what Huawei's done to build an integrated business in China, but also in these sort of partners of China across the world? So I'm not an expert on that, um, on the technical side, but what I can say is Huawei is, is selling to a lot of regions around the world, as you mentioned, yeah. at a fraction of price of the Americans and some of the Europeans. And they're giving good loans. They're being more respectful, and it's coming part and parcel with the Chinese government expansion into these regions. Correct. That's the point. So they're getting a lot of support from the government side. So it's sort of like wielding a big stick. Like it's sort of saying if you want to get infrastructure loans, if you want us to help build tunnels and bridges and airports, you also might want to think about using Huawei telecom gear 
That's a big thing. What, what scares me, actually, though, and th- this is something that's somewhat interesting to people, is I actually just visited the Huawei campus a couple months ago. And when you go in there, it's scary. Hmm. Because I was going in with a group of about 50 CEOs, and our guide all of a sudden said, okay, who wants to be tracked? So they could have chosen any of us. One person raised his hand, and on the screen, they were able to say, at 2 o'clock, here's a photo of the person here. At 2.03, here's a photo of the person there. At 2.07, here's a photo of the person there. So what's scary right now is they have this facial recognition and tracking software that follows anyone everywhere. And so that, to me, is a little bit disconcerting. Um, And they even told us that they were going to come up with how people walk, you know, their gait. Right. So, so it's not a, just about facial recognition, but right. everybody walks differently. Right. So there's a, there's a very famous um, company in Israel as well that does sort of gait tracking and in conjunction with facial recognition. It's a big deal. You're right. The same way that your ears and your fingerprints are different, most people's gaits are different. And it's very interesting, actually. It scares me because, <laughs> I mean, sure. China's government you know, is installing cameras all over the country, and they've gone first in Shenzhen, always hometown. Right. But, you know, it's really big brother. Now, when you talk to everyday Chinese, they like it right now. Sure. Because they're so worried about being cheated or scammed. You know, they say, okay, if I got into a car accident, they can look at the camera, and they can prove who is right and who is wrong. So for now, Chinese people like having the security of cameras sort of overseeing everything. But you need to take a step back and say Huawei's there. And then Alibaba and Tencent have minute information on what we do from when we wake up until we go to sleep. Right. Because unlike, you know, in the United States, these two players control everything. You know, what videos you watch, how you book a hotel appointment, a hospital appointment, uh, bike riding, you know, car sharing, taxis. Everything is done through, you know, really these three companies, Huawei, Tencent, and Alibaba. So there's just a lot of tracking that's going on by these private Chinese companies that are funneling a lot of this information to the Chinese government. Right. That's something I think privacy experts need to be aware of. Right. So Apple was taking a lot of flack um, not that long ago, just on February 17th, right? So the Hong Kong Free Press did an article called How Apple is Paving the Way to a Cloud Dictatorship in China. I think the title is probably a little bit link baby, but it is what it is. But essentially what's being said here, and again, maybe you know this better than I do, but that they're outsourcing their iCloud data center stuff to a company called um, Guangzhou Cloud Big Data. And it kind of sounds similar to me to what Microsoft announced in September, which is a partnership with China 21 Vianet, which is they run the back end for Azure kind of as a joint venture in China. And I'm just wondering what the perception of that is as kind of a follow-on to this, how scary it is, not even just scary, but just how powerful it is for both of those companies to be running big data businesses in China, but also their association with those firms, which could be potentially associated with the government. I'm just w- wondering what your view on that is. So I think the Chinese right now don't, haven't thought about it enough. Um, we've found in the last two, three months they're getting more concerned because there actually has been more criticism in the Chinese press about how much data is being held by these big domestic Chinese firms. Um, I think for Chinese, when they see a Microsoft, they see a Google, or they see any American company, um, they understand that they're going to be partnering with Chinese firms right? um, because that's the law of the land. um, And people are more concerned right now about those players and a little bit about the government, not as much about Microsoft. But I do think it's a question that shareholders – and, you know, privacy rights people globally need to think about. 
um, is where are these foreign players hosting their information? What, what are the laws overseeing using their system? So, for instance, if I use WeChat and I communicate with another person in China, I understand it's going to be censored. If I'm in China communicating with somebody in the United States, the odds are quite likely that it's censored as well. But what if you're two Americans based in America communicating with each other? Right. Where is that data held? And is there censorship there? And so I think that's one of the reasons why Tencent hasn't done as well in countries like the United States that have a lot of privacy concerns, have a lot of concerns about the Chinese government, while they have done well in a South Africa or in a Thailand or in Indonesia right, where, where they, those people concerns don't care. aren't as pressing. Right. I mean, exactly. I, right. Like, I mean, I'm, I, sit in, I sit in Thailand, right? As you know, I live in Bangkok, and there's just so little concern about privacy per se, right? And it, all, it seems to me, yeah. we can get into a philosophical discussion about this, but privacy to me seems to be like a new concept, right? A modern concept, actually, for lack of a better term, in the sense that, you know, in the old days, people lived in a village, they shared all of their stuff together, and every night they sort of sat around a fire and talked about things, and everybody kind of knew what everybody else was doing, and then they went back into their homes and lived their lives. And we're kind of looping back around to that with all this data. The only problem is that that data is now centralized in this massive place and can now be analyzed. So it's a little bit different, right? But I'm really curious how like the different perceptions of these different companies from a privacy perspective come into play, because even in Thailand, I won't say everybody, but so many people have cameras in their cars. And what's happened is that people really appreciate this, as you were mentioning before, from a scamming or cheating perspective. There's a very famous video that went around last week or the week before of a woman who literally like fell down in front of a car that was stopped and then claimed that she was hit by the car. And the guy inside the car was worried not at all because he had the whole fake yep. scene caught on video, right? Now the question is, how are governments going to do this and what is it, what's the impact going to be on a company like Apple, which is deeply interested and involved in protecting privacy, and other companies, maybe Huawei, maybe Xiaomi, you know, maybe Oppo, that aren't as concerned, and Tencent, I guess, fits, fits into that as well. How does that impact their business? And from my perspective, I think globally, maybe not so much, right? Again, if, these, if the arrogance of the Western companies and the Western governments continues, I think the world is going to move in a direction where maybe privacy doesn't become such a big deal, for better or for worse, right? Yeah, I think um, for China, I think the hardware manufacturers are going to do well out of this, I think like so. a Huawei, because most of their sales are to the government. Yep. And again, the consumers like yeah. having the cameras around because they feel safe with it. Um, you know, whenever I see a fight on the street in China or an accident, the first reaction is, look at the cameras. Yep. You know, uh, where are the cameras? And when there aren't any cameras, people get very frustrated. You know, I can give a couple examples. In my housing compound, about 20 or 30 of us had our tires slashed. Oh, no. And we, it, it's one of the nicer compounds in the country, so sure. people are very upset, and they're very haughty, saying, how could this happen where we live? <laughs> right, right. And everyone said, look at the cameras. And amazingly, we couldn't find a camera that caught how any of these tires got slashed. What does that mean, though? And there was anger. Well, I think, well, for us, that said, was this a security guard or is this somebody who knew where the cameras were located? Exactly. Exactly. It's an <laughs> inside thing, right? Somebody people knew. were furious because they said, how is it possible that there aren't cameras covering all these different areas? That was a big thing. Or even on the more personal basis, a couple weeks ago, uh, I was in the gym in my compound and one guy was being a real jerk, 
and we mixed a little bit of words, and he came up and just hit me <laughs> oh, and like... told me foreigners should go home. Right, not He sure. said, I don't like foreigners. You foreigners should go back. Right. You know, which if, if you're in the United States, by the way, and a white person yells at an Asian yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and says, you should go back to your home country, that's considered racism. Well, in China, a Chinese person can yell at a foreigner and say, go home, you Waiguaran, and nobody blinks an eye. Yeah, it's national. But anyway, so my right? reaction yeah. was, look at the cameras. You know, because this guy was yelling that I hit him first when he hit me first. Right. And so I wanted to look at the cameras and have that as evidence. Now, unfortunately, I don't think there was a camera in the gym, which was just shocking to us. But I think most Chinese like the idea of having cameras because it gives that security. Now, when it comes to Apple, I think Apple's in a very different situation. As you said, you, they claim to like to have security and privacy, but they're not going to be able to do that when they're in China. Right. At that's the end why, of the day, that's why I brought it up. In China, and the Chinese government says, I want access, you have to give up access. And I think that's why Tim Cook has been so mealy-mouthed um, when dealing with China. You know, at the Wujian Internet Conference recently, Tim Cook was sort of the big keynote speaker, and right. he was saying that the Internet is flowering here. He didn't talk about the censorship. He didn't talk about the wholesale blocking of Twitter and Facebook and a bazillion other American companies. He just said everything is great. It was mealy-mouthed and pathetic, and he should be criticized for it. Part of it is because his entire supply chain and it's his second-largest market in the world after the United States is all in China. Right. And he understands that he's walking a very fine line between being able to earn money here and being beholden to the Chinese government. If the government says, you're out, he's going to lose his business. He'll lose hundreds of you know, hundreds of, what is it, uh, millions of dollars. Billions, uh, trillions of, uh, billions, billions, of dollars billions of dollars for sure. With their market cap. Billions of dollars with their market cap. And that's why he's been so mealy-mouthed. I think the end of, at the end of the day is if you want to do business in China, you have to do what the government wants, especially with the current situation with the end of term limits for the president and vice president that was announced yesterday. Right. Is if you don't do what Xi Jinping wants, you're not going to be able to do business here long term. But what does that mean? There just like I said at the beginning of this call, there are just so many things to talk about. Before we talk about term limits, I just want to go back to perception and reality, if you don't mind, right? So I mentioned that Microsoft made an announcement in September of last year that they were going to partner with China 21 via net. And it kind of just got glossed over by the press, at least for me. And yet when Apple is doing kind of the same thing, it says, how is Apple paving the way to a cloud dictatorship in China? Is there a reason why, you know, as an American living in China, like what is the perception or the difference between the perception of the two companies, China and, I mean, Microsoft and Apple, two gigantic tech companies, both of them based on the West Coast of the United States. You know, both of them have been around for 40 more years, right? Not, what is it, Microsoft 1975, Apple's 1976. They've been around forever. Why is it that when Apple does something, it's dictatorship in China, when China, and when Microsoft does it, it's just like an announcement about China 21 via net? Um, I, I think part of it is because, you know, the Apple fanboys just love Apple. <laughs> and they have a much more loyal following, frankly. If I ever say anything about Apple in the press, right. I'll get hordes of angry fanboys messaging me, calling me an idiot. <laughs> um, with Microsoft, I Not find so much. that people don't really like Microsoft, so they sort of someone. kill every gate software. <laughs> I mean, really, truly, like Skype is barely usable right now. It you is, know, isn't LinkedIn it? is a mess compared to before. Anything right. that Microsoft gets its hands in just doesn't work. It's already people consider it the evil empire of sorts. Right, so you've you said this twice, and I just want to address this a little bit, right? So you said people yell at you. Um, 
I want to understand how the your this current book, right, The War for China's Wallet, has been received differently than your two previous books, particularly in the context of Silicon Valley and China's ability to innovate, right? So you've been you've been pillared in the press before for people saying to you, China can't innovate, they're just copying stuff, nothing good's ever going to come out of there. And now it's 2018. And wow, it just feels different. And I'm wondering, now that the book is released, now it's been released in the United States as well, are people still yelling at you and telling you that China can't innovate? Like, what's the different perception now from Silicon Valley, particularly as a, the context of there, technological There's definitely innovation? been a shift. When my book, End of Copycat China, came out in 2014, right. I got pilloried by Silicon Valley, by the press, by, you know, all different types, of, pretty much everywhere, saying that China could never innovate. Um, and they were pretty harsh on me, frankly. Really? Um, what I would say is now people understand Silicon Valley is two, three years behind China when it comes to mobile service technology innovation. Right. Um, and now people are coming here to learn about technology. As a matter of fact, in a couple of weeks, um, you know, Big Bank has hired me because they're bringing their biggest tech investors from the United States to China to look around the country, and I'll be showing them around day about the innovation in O2O and mobile services. So I think people now understand that China has a lot of innovation. Not everyone, not across the board, but I think the minute you put your foot into the country here, it's very clear right. um, just what's going on here. So it's not as I'm not getting attacked on that end anymore. Good. Um, when it comes to the new book, The War for China's Wallet, I'm getting heavily criticized more by the diplomatic community, policy analysts, um, you know, and the, maybe the foreign policy establishment, because I think my book really talks about how China's growing its power base and how they're not screwing it up. It, they're actually following a pretty well methodical laid out plan that I think is smart and savvy, while most of the American, and I, I usually say American because it's the other superpower, but it's, it, just it, the proxy it's true for, the rest for other of the countries. World, right? yeah. But the foreign policy establishment thinks China's mucking everything up, which I don't see it. Um, so... Yeah, a lot of the, the foreign policy folks don't like this current book. But, mucking but they're not like, as mean. Not they're more <laughs> diplomatic than Silicon Valley was to me. Really? <laughs> the last one. That's weird. But when you say mucking it up or when they say mucking it up, right, like in what context? What are they mucking up? If they're mucking up a world order that benefits the West only, right, which has been historically the case, well, then maybe that's not such a bad thing per se. Well, I think a lot of Americans and the Western world forgets that other countries still remember colonialism. Correct. That it wasn't that far ago. And they're trying to shed the yoke of the white man, you know, telling everybody how to do things. So that, that's one stream. So I think that, you know, Xi Jinping's New World Order is something that a lot of countries alike um, because it's giving much more equality and much more say to non-white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. Right. Um, and then, you know, the Catholic side from France. Um, so I think that's one side of it. Um, I think the the other side is where it's mucking up, and then maybe we can save you know some of this analysis for a third interview because yeah, I do have definitely. to go soon. But wh one of the things is a lot of American you know at Harvard and all these places when I talk with people, they always say the Chinese are screwing up. They're not creating strong allied relationships with Vietnam and their neighbors in the same way that the United States has with the UK or the United States with Canada. Now, one of the central tenets of my book is that China doesn't want to be allies with nations. They want to scare, cajole, reward, benefit countries to become friendly to China and trading partners. 
But when you take a country that has such a long history as China, it's impossible for them to become true friends with its neighbors in the way the United States did. So when China's building up their bases in the South China Sea, to me, this is a very smart thing. Yeah. Because it's telling everybody in the region, you got to follow us. The Americans say that China's making a mistake, but the proof is in the pudding. Trade is booming with China. If people didn't want to work with China, there wouldn't be a lot of trade. Now, there is some pushback, obviously, but you know I think American analysts are very simplistic and naive sometimes. Like You still talk to them, and they still think that China and Vietnam should be close friends because they're both communist countries. But that's ridiculous because, obviously, Vietnam and China have had tension – for a millennium. Right. You know, I was in Vietnam a few months ago meeting with a lot of the senior economic advisors to the president there, and they said they're very cautious of getting too close to China because they don't trust them. Yeah, and they wouldn't because historically they haven't been able to. I mean, you're right, though, from a geopolitical perspective, right? China doesn't need allies, nor does it want allies. It doesn't want to promise anything to someone and then not be able to deliver. It really just wants to create a sphere of influence regionally and globally, that's going to benefit itself. And frankly, exactly. it's only doing the same thing, first of all, that it did, like you said, millennials ago, millenniums ago, but also it's doing the same thing that you know the British did and that the Portuguese did and that the United States did when they were the world's power. I, I don't think this is much exactly. different than what happened before. And I think the only reason why you're seeing pushback from the political powers that be today is that they're afraid that they're losing their influence. And frankly... I didn't really want to go there, but if you look at just, just the top of the political leadership and who's being more savvy, I, I really don't think there's a global argument about which government is being more savvy about the development and the use of its power today um, as opposed to 25 years ago, to be fair. Exactly. Exactly. Um, that's the main thrust of the book. Yeah, that is the main thrust of the book. Look, I have a lot more stuff that I want to cover with you, but if you need to go, I'm happy as long as you promise to come back again soon. I'm happy to come back again. I do have to run to a uh, another interview, actually. Okay. Um, so I'm happy to do a third one. We can make a series of like every 30-minute 30, 30 ones or something. I'm happy it to do it. makes it easier for I people was, to listen to. Yeah, I was going to say, like, we should just keep doing this because I love the conversations, but I also love the perspective. Look, I just want to thank you, Sean, for coming and doing this again, and um, let's schedule something soon, too. Thank you so much, Michael. Have a good one. Cheers.